titled this series, Uncommon Faith. Uncommon Faith. There's, a, there's common faith. You know, we, we all exercise faith every day of our lives. Uh, for example, you get in your car and you have faith that when you turn on the key, uh, it's going to start. Or you sat in the pew, you had faith that it's going to hold you up. So we exercise faith in a common way uh, all the time. What we were talking about is something that's uncommon. Uncommon means that it's extraordinary. It's something out of the ordinary. It's something that's beyond uh, what is just kind of what we see day in and day out. So uh, as we dive into the book of James, um, let's just look at the first couple verses. Here's what James says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, you may or may not know that James was the half-brother of Jesus, and it's believed that he was probably the second oldest in the family. And uh, James, being the half-brother of Jesus, did not really believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, who was God. So how would you feel if your sibling came up to you and said, hey, I'm God? Uh, yeah, right. Well, let's try that out. Uh, let's put that to the test. In fact, they were, James and his siblings, Jesus' other siblings, um, they, put Je- they wanted to institutionalize Jesus at one point in his ministry because he was going about claiming to be God and teaching that he was, in fact, the Messiah, uh, the long-awaited Savior of the world that, um, that they had been you know, taught all of their lives to be looking for. And so um, James... Uh, did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was until, until Jesus was crucified and buried for three days, and then he came out of the grave in his resurrection. And after his resurrection, he personally uh, came to James and said, here I am. I told you, you watched, you saw me, you, I bled, I died, I was in the grave for three days, I've arisen, I am who I claim to be. And James puts his faith and trust in his brother Jesus uh, as Messiah, as Jesus, the Savior of the world. Listen, anytime you have an encounter with Christ, it's going to dramatically change your life. And James was so changed by not just seeing the resurrected Christ, but believing and trusting in him to be the Savior, to be the Messiah that he was claiming to be and who he authenticated he was going to be um, through his ministry. And so James refers to himself. Notice he says, I'm James, a servant of God, which means uh, I, I consider myself God's property. I've been bought with a price. My life is not my own. And so James says, you know what? Um, I'm going to lay it all on the line for you. Lord, I, I'm going to lay it all on the line. And what we know about James is, we know some things, not a lot of things, but what we do know is that James began this ferocious desire to follow Jesus and to continue on the message of Christ. So when you come to the upper room, for example, when there's 120 people there praying, awaiting for the Holy Spirit as Jesus told them to do so, James was there. James became a primary leader in the church. He became the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, and uh, he was the one who led the um, Jerusalem council in Acts 15. He became a very predominant leader in uh, in in the early church. Now, why this is so, so important is because as people are now um, coming under persecution for their Christian faith, Jesus says, I want you to be witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they were all gathered, and in Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. All of a sudden, the early church, as it was growing in explosive growth, 5,000, 10,000 people, they camped out in Jerusalem, refused to leave the city, and so God allowed persecution to come and scattered them all abroad. 
And James remained behind as one of the primary leaders in the early church. And he writes a letter to all of those who've been scattered abroad. And he says, you know what? I know under the Roman Empire, I know that you're going through severe trials and persecution. I know that life is hard right now. Many of them lost their jobs. Many of them were ostracized by their families because of their faith and trust in, in Jesus as Messiah. Many of them were going through very difficult times. And James says, hey, I want to give you a reason why you need to hang on and continue to hold out your hope in what Christ is coming to do in your life. And so James challenges us in 13 areas of our lives to step out in bold, uncommon faith. And the very first area that he deals with are the areas of trials or problems, difficulties. All of us experience difficulties and problems and trials in life because we live in a fallen world among fallen people, right? And so, you know, things don't always turn out the way they should. Things don't always, you know, um, unfold like you thought they would. And so James comes along and then he says, in all these various trials that you're experiencing in life, I want you to consider them pure joy. Now, if you're going through a really rough time and your heart is broken and you're trying to figure out what's going on in your life and why this is happening to you, and somebody walks up to you and says, you know what, I see what you're going through, um, why don't you just consider that all pure joy? Don't you just want to turn around and punch him? I mean, really? Would you not just want to slap somebody? It's like when somebody comes up to you and you're going through a difficult time and they always pull out the same verse of the scripture where you know the Bible says that God uses all things conformance to the image of Christ. Why does James tell us to consider it pure joy? Why is that even important to us? What, what does that have to do with uncommon faith? And, and why would God even address this issue in our lives? 86% of Americans, 86% of Americans will say we're Christians. Poll after poll has been done throughout our country, 86%. But they walk in a common faith. And a common faith that, you know, um, I come to church sporadically. I give once in a while if I think I can. And, you know, I, I may pick up my Bible if I'm in an, you know, uh, really... Um, if I need to bring it to church, and, you know, I, go to, I may even go to a Bible study, but, you know, it's just kind of what I do, and, and uh, you know, I, uh, uh, I, you know, I hope, I just hope at the end of my life that somehow, someway, my good works are going to outweigh my bad works, and God's going to, you know, on his grand scale, let me enter into heaven. If you talk to people, that's basically where they are in their common faith. That's a common faith in America. You know, God's there to help me find and live out the American dream and whatever God can do to help me accomplish that. Uh, really, that's what he's there for. And when I'm not experiencing that, then yeah, I'll call out to God in prayer once in a while. He is my emergency channel, and therefore, um, he'll help me to experience all of these things. Common faith in the midst of trials would say, God, get me out of this quickly. Take it away from me. Help me overcome it. Make it as easy on me as possible. Um, but yet in James's day, people are losing their lives for their faith. People are being, you know, thrown into lion's dens and into arenas where animals are coming and using them for lunch. 
And James comes along and says, now, I want you to consider the trials. I want you to consider what God's doing. I want you to consider it as joy. Why would he even say that? Why would he say that to us? Because he wants us to have an uncommon faith. An uncommon faith is a faith, again, that's willing to go beyond the boundaries. I love the the song by Hillsong. It's called Oceans. And listen to the lyrics. It says, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Allow me to walk on the water. This is based on when Peter, you know, Jesus is walking on water. Peter's in the boat with the other disciples. and says, Lord, allow me to come out and walk with you. And Jesus says, come on. And Peter steps out of the boat. Allow me to walk on the water without borders. Wherever you would call me, take me deeper that my faith might grow stronger. And that's God's goal, right? God's goal is that we have a faith that is deep and strong in him so that we trust him no matter what the situation is in our life. Because all relationships are built on trust. And where there's an absence of trust, there is an absence of relationship. You know this through marriage, right? You may have been married, and uh, maybe you've gone through a divorce, and you went through the divorce because there, the trust factor in the relationship broke down. It disintegrated. It went away. And married couples know that you will only go as deep with somebody as you are willing to trust them, whether it's in a friendship or a marriage. And so James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, he's writing to these people who have been scattered all over the country, um, all over the Roman Empire, And he says, guys, God has issued a calling upon your lives. He wants to do something so miraculous within you that as you walk in this this victory that God's going to give you, that others are going to see it and they're going to observe it and they're going to want to know, what is it that makes such a difference in your life? Why can you consider this joy? Don't confuse joy with happiness, all right? Happiness is about having my circumstances all lined up, you know, and the stars align and everything in in life is going well. Joy is something that is supernatural. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit of God. Joy is something that God gives us regardless of what's happening around us. Now, there's a wrong question to ask in the midst of this, and there's a right question. Here's the wrong question. The wrong question in the midst of trials is, how can I avoid them? How can I avoid them? You can't. Remember what Jesus says? Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. There's not a single person in the Bible who thought they could live life on planet earth among fallen people in a fallen world, and you would not have problems or trials. That's unrealistic. So it's not about how do I avoid them. Here's the right question is, God, how do I handle these with your help? How do I handle them with your help? Oftentimes when our problems first hit us, what do we think first of all? Well, God's mad at me. God's trying to get back at me. I knew I shouldn't have done that. I knew I shouldn't have done that stupid thing. I knew I should. And so we start going through our checklist in our minds. What have I done that has created so much anger on God's behalf that he has sent this trial into my life in order to beat me up, chew me up, and spit me out? God is not against you. God is for you. God isn't leveraging his punishment against you. God took his punishment for our wrongdoings and for our sins and placed them upon his son Jesus on the cross. God is not about punishing you. He is about helping you get the most out of life with the least amount of wear and tear. But God is also interested in developing you 
into Christ-likeness. That is, that your life begins to look like the life of Jesus. That your attitudes begin to change. That your thought processes begin to change. So that when you look in the mirror, you're not thinking of, you know, looking at somebody and going, you know, I'm just a stupid person. I'm, I'm dumb. I'm ugly. I'm not worth anything. Those are not the thoughts that God wants you to have. God wants you to be thinking, I'm valuable, that I have been created by God, that I can have a relationship with God, that God so loved me that he sent Christ to die for me, that I can walk with God and he with me. Those are the kinds of thoughts that God wants you to have. Have. And so um, if somebody says to you, well, the reason why you're going through this trial is because somehow you're outside of the will of God, not true. You can be in the midst of a trial and be right smack dab in the middle of God's will. There are three relationships that you have with trials. You are either in one, you just come out of one, or you're heading towards one. And that's the cycle of life. We're always confronted with trials. So you cannot avoid trials, but you can, and here's the fill-in. Here's our big idea. We cannot avoid trials, but we can control what we do in the middle of them, what we do in the midst of them. I want to I share with you um, four things that God is seeking to accomplish in your life when he allows you to go through a trial or a difficult time in your life. This is what James bears out for us. Here's the first one, is that trials, God allows trials into our lives. He doesn't necessarily send them personally, but he allows them, or sometimes he may send them, but he does so because he understands that trials are the pathway to spiritual maturity. I'm never going to grow. I'm never going to mature in my, and deepen my trust in God until I go through these difficult times. Notice what he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Listen, spiritual growth and maturity is not about becoming smarter. There are a lot of people who know a lot of things about the Bible, can quote me a lot of verses. But they're not living a Christ-like life. They're still just as bitter and angry and cantankerous as they ever were. It's not about becoming smarter. You can know the Bible from cover to cover and never really trust God with your life. It's not about what you know. It's about what you do. And that's really the thrust of this entire book is James is all about what? Doing. He's all about, look, don't just look in God's word and see what needs to be changed and then just walk away and do nothing. No, get back there and do what you need to do in order to deepen your faith and your trust and your walk with God because God wants to walk with you on such a deep, intimate level one beyond our wildest imagination. And so he says, one of the outrageous statements of the Bible, consider it pure joy. Notice he didn't say, he said, consider it, not feel it. You can't control how you feel. But you can control what you think. And what you think affects how you feel. You know, if Greg goes in, if I go into my kitchen and start cooking, the smoke alarm's going off. (laughs) 
You know, when I, another time the smoke alarm will go off? When my house is on fire. So when it comes to trials, there have been trials in my life as well as in your life that are huge trials. I mean, just, just absolutely sweeps the rug out from under you where it's like you're angry and, and you're trying to figure it out and you don't know why. And um, so, you know, and, and it's just a, a huge gut-wrenching trial. And so when I'm going through those gut-wrenching trials, you know what happens? I can't sleep at night. I don't eat very well. I, I, I don't, and when I do eat, I, I don't eat the right things. Like I'll polish off, you know, a whole bag of chips and chip dip or whatever. And because why? My feelings are all over the map because there's great inner turmoil happening as a result of what I'm facing in life at that moment in time. But then there's other smaller trials that happen in my life that are less significant, but I have the same kinds of emotions. I have difficulty sleeping, it keeps rolling over in my mind, I can't get it off my mind, I don't eat well, I don't eat right, and so whether it's less important or those that are earth-shattering, my feelings are reacting in the same way just like my smoke detector acts whether I'm cooking or my house is on fire. You can't control, stop trying to control your emotions in the midst of a trial. That's not what God is after. You can't control your feelings, but you can control what you do in the midst of those feelings. So he says, consider pure joy. Why? Because God is at work in your life. God is at work. We have multiple choices before us when we encounter trials. Multiple choices. You can, you can get angry with God. Uh, you, can, um, you can get discouraged. You can develop this huge attitude uh, towards people around you, in your family, your friends at work, and you're carrying this huge burden, you go to work, and you're just like mad at everyone and everything, and you just unload and explode on the, you know, the person who, who just uh, accidentally comes across your pathway and says the wrong thing at the wrong time, because you're still, you're, your emotions are all over the map because of what it is you're facing in life. So I want you to understand that God is, listen, the reason why we consider it pure joy is because God is at work in my life. God never allows me to have a trial, encounter a trial, and that word encounter means the same word that was used of the Good Samaritan was on his way, you know, uh, taking traveling, and he was, you know, ambushed by bandits, right? And he was beaten and stripped and left for dead. That sometimes that's what trials do to us. They just ambush us. You think you're going along well in life, and all of a sudden you get a phone call, or you get a doctor's report, and it absolutely just wrecks you emotionally. But the reason I consider joy, not happiness, joy, is because I know that God's going to use this to do something in my life. So let me give you five things really quick of what God may be doing in your life. These aren't the only things, but they are certainly ones, and I've given you a passage of Scripture that you can look at and just kind of meditate on that throughout the course of the week. Sometimes God uses a trial to develop me, to develop me. What if you went to the doctor's office, and you sat down in front of your doctor, and he said, hey, uh, your blood pressure is way out of control. Your cholesterol is through the roof. You are a prime candidate for a heart attack. Now, here's what you need to do. You need to make some changes in your life. You need to, get some, you need to reduce some stress in your life. Uh, you're going to need to start eating better and changing your eating habits. You probably need to diet and exercise. Um, would that get your attention? 
probably for a nanosecond. Do you know how many people go through heart bypass, triple bypass, quadruple bypass? My mother being one of them. The doctor said, this is what you need to do. She was diabetic on top of that. This is the, the lifestyle you need to live. This is the way you need to eat. This is the way you need to exercise. These are things you need to do to keep that from happening again because your diabetes has contributed to those conditions. You know how long it lasted for my mom? Less than a year. I'd walk in the house. There'd be cookies and cakes and all this stuff all over the place. And I'd say, Mom, you're not allowed to eat that kind of stuff. And I'd get one or two answers. Hey, you got to live a little. Or, that's for the grandkids. Get out of here. It wasn't. You see, God uses problems to mold and to fashion our lives to help us to grow, to mature. That's why he said, consider it. Press your mind down upon it. God's testing your faith. He's trying to produce perseverance. That word perseverance means to remain under. Remain under the trial until God has produced what it is that he's producing to bring you to maturity, to completeness, to wholeness, so that you're what? Lacking in nothing. Our problem is we want the product without the process. We just want to one day just automatically wake up and just become spiritually mature, Christ-like in the way we think, in the way we, our character and our behavior and all those things, and it just doesn't happen that way. Listen, I became the person I am today is because God has allowed me to walk through some very deep trials in my life like he has for you. I became a better parent, a better husband, a better pastor because I was willing, watch, I was willing to stay in the middle of the trial and let God do what he wanted to do. I wasn't always that way. There are many times when I wanted to bail out of the trial, I wanted to God to remove it, take it away as quickly as he can, and that's the way I prayed, and I was not willing to trust God long enough to allow him to do what it is he wanted to do. So you need to ask yourself the question, is God developing? How's God using this problem to make you more like Christ? It might be that God's using a trial to inspect you. Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Sometimes God uses trials to bring to the surface those things that God wants us to take off Remember, Paul talks about this all the time. When we're maturing in our faith and walk with God, God, there are things God wants to take off our lives, and there's things he wants to put on. And he wants to take off our lives those things that are hurtful, those things that are damaging to us, those sin issues in our lives that he knows is going to lead to a great deal of pain in our lives. So God inspects us. What does is, what is the problem reveal about me? I need, to, I need to think about that. Sometimes God uses child, trials to correct me. Hebrews 12 10 and 11 says that God uses discipline in our lives sometimes to correct us because I'm heading down the wrong pathway. I've set my, remember, every path has a destination. If you set your feet on the wrong path that leads to the wrong destination, God wants to protect you from that. He doesn't want you to experience what's at the end of that road, and therefore he sees that, and he's going to do everything in his power to correct you, to move you to another pathway that leads to the best destination that he could possibly have. And so sometimes God has to bring discipline in our lives because sin, he knows, has a built-in consequence factor. Again, God's not punishing you. He just wants you to learn. He wants, you to, he wants to move you to where he needs you to be. Number four, sometimes God uses trials to protect me. Sometimes to protect me. Psalm 19 talks about this. 
For example, it might be for, well, with my wife. Um, long before we ever started dating, she was, she was engaged to be married. And God just put a check in her spirit and said, you know what? There's just something not right here. There's just something wrong. She couldn't put her finger on it, but God just kept taking her back and said, there's just something not, not quite right. And so she broke off the engagement. And what, what God protected her from was that this individual to whom she was engaged later on got married and ended up, you know, become, he, he was a wife beater. He beat his wife so severely, put her in hospital multiple times. God protected my wife from that because he didn't want her to experience that. And so what if she had just blown through that, that check in her spirit? So God, I don't, you know, I don't care what you say. I'm in love with the guy. This is what I'm going to do. This is, I'm going to follow my heart. And she would have, may have been the recipient of those, those beatings. And so instead she got me and hey, it was all good. <laughs> Just kidding. My wife and I have been, as you know, been through many trials together. But God has been faithful to us. Number five, God uses trials to direct us. I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all, all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Don't lean on your understanding. If I lean on this table, it's going to hold me up, right? So I'm leaning on something. God says do not lean on your understanding because God wants to give you direction. But our hearts are not always um, a good gauge for direction in life. Our conscience is not always a wise gauge in life, but the Word of God is. And so God has given us His Holy Spirit. He's given us the Bible, the B-I-B-L-A. Remember singing that song as a child? Basic instructions before leaving earth. God wants you... Listen, God gave you the Bible. It's, it's about a love relationship because He wants to direct your life in the way that is most beneficial for you. But sometimes we just ignore God and we lean on our own understanding. We do our own thing in our own way. And as a result of that, uh, we experience some hardship and heartache in our lives. And so those are the ways that God might be using trials to bring maturity in your life. My suggestion to you is simply this, is that as you're going through the trial, get out the Word of God and start allowing the Spirit to speak to you. And just look up these verses I've given you and ask God, say, God, you know, is this trial, are you trying to correct me in some way? Are you directing my life in some way? Is there some area in my life that you're developing me? You know, Lord, what is it that you are doing within me? And here's the second thing. As God is forming and fashioning you, uh, you cannot grow. You cannot grow to maturity. If you drop out halfway through the process, trust me, I've done that. Been there, done that. Is I, I so wanted to change things as God was, you know, allowing me to experience heartache. For example, you might be in the midst of a financial trial, and your instinct is what? I'll credit card myself out of this. I'll, I'll go in debt no matter how, how far I got to go get in debt in order to bypass this trial, in order not to follow God, in order to bypass what he might be doing in my life. And so you do. You go out, you charge it up, and then all of a sudden you have this massive debt. But with massive debt, you know what? You become a slave to the debtor. It's easy to get in debt. Can I get an amen? It's hard to get out. It's painful to get out. And it might be that God is simply trying to keep you from experiencing that in your life. 
So he says, what did he say? He says, I, he, I'm testing you to develop perseverance. I want you to persevere. That's the secret to maturity. You're persevering. You are allowing God to keep you in the trial until he accomplishes what it is he's seeking to accomplish in your life because he only has what's best for you. I have learned in life that it is through trials that God forms my character and fashions my faith. In marriage, you will never get to the golden years of your 50th wedding anniversary without going through some trials, right? You're going to go through some valleys. You're going to go through some hard times. You're going to go through times in which, you know what, the only thing keeping you together is the fact that you're just like, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not going to give up on this. And you just keep persevering and you keep persevering. And God takes you through that valley and he brings you through and he gets you onto a, a better place in life and a better place in your marriage. You talk to any couple that's been married for any length of time at all and they will say, you know what? There were some very dark times in our marriage. There were some very difficult times in our marriage, but we just decided we're going to stick it out. We're going to persevere to the end and we are so glad we did. I'm a testimony to that. Here's a principle you need to understand. Partial obedience. Partial obedience is not obedience at all. To give you a quick example out of 1 Samuel 15. God came to King Saul. He's king over Israel. And God said to King Saul, you've been fighting against the Amalekites. It's time to put an end to it. I've given them 400 years to turn to me. And they've refused to do it. Now you're going to go to war against them. And I want you to wipe them out. I want you to take out everything. Men, women, children, animals. You say, well, why would God ever do that? How could God be so cruel? That's a whole other message. But God says, I, I, I want it all done. And so um, Saul goes against, wars against the Amalekites. And of course, the Amalekites were not nice people, okay? War was their middle name. They were, they were brutal people. They're warriors. And so um, King... Saul goes against the Amalekites, and then Samuel, who is the prophet of God, comes back and says, uh, well, did you take care of everything? Saul's like, yeah, I, I, I did it all. And he goes, well, what's the bleeding of those sheep back here I hear? Well, you know, God wants us to give him the best, so we kept the sheep for, the, you know, the soldiers. He, didn't blame, he said the soldiers wanted to keep the sheep to offer them up as offerings to God and give God the best. And well, what about the king? Well, you know, with the king, well, we're going to take him, care of him. Bottom line was, he did not obey God. He partially obeyed God, but he didn't fully obey God. And Samuel said to King Saul, the Lord could care less about your religious activity, your sacrifices of offering. What he's looking for is absolute trust and obedience. And because you have refused to do that, you will no longer be king over Israel. Now, what does that have to do with us? Again, partial obedience is no obedience at all. James will say in his book, for whoever keeps the whole law but yet stumbles at one part, you're breaking it all. Do not merely listen to God's word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
You can take all kinds of classes about walking with God, about prayer, about meditating on God's Word, about all kinds of things. You can take all kinds of, you can have, no, you can have a whole shelf full of notebooks. But it won't mean anything if you're not willing to obey what God has asked you to do. You see, that's what God's looking for, is to bring us in alignment with his heart, with his desires, so that he can set our feet on a path that leads to the best destination possible for your life and mine. And so if I want to break through, you know, most people, what we learn, we forget really quick because it doesn't stick. You want to know why it doesn't stick? Because you, you, you don't have any interest in it at that point, point in time. How many of you went through school and you took, like, math class? You thought, man, I'm going to remember this. Huh? Or how many of you took, like, a foreign language? How's that working for you now? You see, I did a series just not long ago on marriage, and some of you are, like, yawning through the whole series because, yeah, like, hey, my marriage is okay. But those in the congregation who were struggling in their marriages, they were all ears because it meant something at that moment in time. We just came out of a series on breakthrough, how God can give you breakthrough in your life where you're stuck. And for some of you, you didn't really, weren't really that interested in it. But from some of you who are stuck and you're looking for a breakthrough in your life, you were all ears. And you have been looking for an encounter with God. And so the same thing is true in our lives is that, you know, if, if we get stuck because we just think, well, you know, this is really not applicable to me at this moment in time in my life. Listen, all of us... You're in a trial, you come out of a trial, or you're about to go into one. It's applicable to our lives. So here's the third point. Trials keep you consciously aware of your need for God. Trials keep you consciously aware of your need for God. So here's what you want to do. You want to ask God for wisdom in the trial and deliverance from the trial. But you're not asking for deliverance until first he has accomplished what he wanted to accomplish in the middle of the trial. Here's a biblical example, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In his humanness, the Bible says that he came and he fell flat on his face in the dirt. He knew that he was about to be crucified. He knew what that meant and what that looked like. He knew that the wrath of God himself was going to be poured out upon him because of the sins of humanity. And he fell flat on his face before God and he says, God, if there's any other way this can happen. If there's any other way we can accomplish what needs to be accomplished on behalf of humanity, take this cup away from me. And how did God respond? Nope. So what did Jesus do? He went back and found his disciples asleep, came back a second time, asked the same question. And God said, nope. Third time, he asked the same question. And God said, nope. But here's the kicker. Jesus said, Father, it's not my will that I'm interested in, but I am interested in yours. So do with me whatever you need to do in order to provide a way of salvation for all of humanity. And he walked in total obedience to the Father. And so James says, if you lack wisdom... 
you should ask of God. Whoever who gives generously without finding fault will be given to him. And when he asks, you must believe and not doubt. That word doubt means um, don't vacillate. Um, because he who doubts is like the way of the sea, the sea, way of the sea blown and tossed in the wind, but the man should think he, and he should receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, stable and unstable in all of his ways. Let me just say well, really quickly what that is. Um, so what, don't treat God like a consultant. When you're going through a trial, and you're asking God for wisdom in the trial and deliverance from the trial, you don't treat God like a consultant, because here's what happens to us is that we just kind of like float out there on Facebook. Hey, here's my situation. Here's what I'm going through. Tell me, what do you think I ought to do? And people start feeding you opinions, right? Not necessarily based on what God's doing in your life, not based on necessarily on Scripture. So you get all these opinions, and then you finally sit down and you ask God, hey, God, what do you think I should do? And God says, this is exactly what you need to do. And then we walk away and we go, Okay, I'll throw that in that, my basket of opinions of all of my friends on, on Facebook, and then I'll decide what I'm going to do. And so what James is saying is that we have two conflicting things that are going on inside of us, and it's, like, um, it's kind of like saying, hey, you know, I really want to get my, my physical health in shape, and I'm going to do everything I can, so I'm going to do a treadmill, and I jump on the treadmill, and I do a mile of walking and a mile of running, and then I get off the treadmill, and I go to my refrigerator, and I get out half a gallon of ice cream, the chocolate syrup, and sprinkles, and put it all on there and eat the whole thing. See, I, I say I really want physical health, but then I do the opposite as well, right? So that's the way we treat God is we say, God, you know, I really want to get my finances together. And God says, well, here's how you get your finances together. And we just throw that in a basket of options. And then we don't do what he tells us to do. That's what Paul's talking, or James is talking about. Don't, don't ask God if you're not going to obey. Why would you ask him? He is not a consultant. He is God. Don't treat him like that. I think he's earned your respect because if you do, you're going to be double-minded in all your ways. So at some point, you've got to get off the fence and become a doer of the word. And so then number four is trials. Trials unveil the goodness and graciousness of God. Oh, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So let let me wrap it up like this. James goes on to talk about a comparison between a rich guy and a poor guy. Because here's what, here's what we do in the middle of trials. Oftentimes our response is, I'm going to have a pity party, and here's why. Because we pull out our phones, and we go to our Instagram accounts, and we go to our Facebook accounts. I'm in the middle of a trial, and I'm feeling sorry for myself, and I'm feeling bad, and I'm feeling down. And I look at all my friends, and it seems like, man, they've got a perfect marriage. They're just counting the money. They're going on these beautiful vacations. They're at the theme parks. They're camping. They're doing all these wonderful things, and life is great and wonderful. And in that comparison, guess what? I get a little angry, right? I get a little jealous. I become greatly envious of what others have and what I don't have, what They're not experiencing, but what I am experiencing. And James says that we get into this comparison trap in the midst of our trials, but it doesn't help us. It just makes us feel worse. And so then we binge on Netflix for the next, you know, uh, two or three weeks, and we can't get out of our pajamas, and, uh, you know, we're just like all over the map, and we're unstable, and, you know, we want what God wants, but then we don't want what God wants, and and so we're just a mess, 
And so then James concluded this by saying, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when you've stood the test, you're going to receive the crown of life. So let me, let me give you one concept I want you to take away today as we leave. There was a, a man whose name was um, Jim Stockdale. Jim Stockdale was one of the most decorated naval officers in U.S. history during the Vietnam War. He was a fighter pilot. And uh, in, during one of his missions, he was shot down. He was forced to eject out of his plane. And he was captured behind enemy lines. And uh, upon his capture uh, by the Vietnamese soldiers, he was severely beaten um, so bad that he could barely walk. He could barely even move. And then he was taken to what was called Hanoi Hilton. If you've ever seen the, the movie Unbroken, um, it's based on this particular uh, camp during the Vietnam War where the leader of that camp was very brutal towards the American soldiers and especially towards uh, Jim Stockdale. And he went undergo beating after beating after beating. This went on for almost eight years. And then he was moved to what they termed, the Vietnam, Vietnamese soldiers termed as the Alcatraz of Vietnam. And there he spent another three to four years in a three-by-nine cell. One single light bulb that burned 24-7. At night, he and the other soldiers there with him were all put in leg shackles, shackled to the wall. This went on year after year. Finally, um, in February, I believe it was 1973, I believe it was, that he finally was released. But his body was so broken that he could barely walk. Over time, his body healed up. He finished out his naval career by being the president of um, the War College. But during that time of the naval, uh, the naval War College, he met a man named Jim Collins. Jim Collins was so taken back by his story, he asked him the question, how in the world did you ever survive all of those years of being beaten week after week after week after week? And in response, um, Jim Stockdale said this, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into a defining event in my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. Jim Collins was so taken back by that statement that he wrote a book, one of the greatest selling books for leadership among business people called From Good to Great. But then Jim Collins asked the question, what about those who did not make it? And here's what he said. They were optimists. They kept saying to themselves, we're going to be out by Christmas. Christmas would come and go. We're going to be out by Easter. Easter would come and go. We're going to be out by Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving would come and go. And because they kept setting those time frames and they came and went, he said, here's what he said. Those who did not make it died of a broken heart. So what is the Stockdale paradox. 
You're going to find this in the ministry of James and Jesus himself. It's simply this. In life, you have to face the brutal facts of what's going on. But you never give up hope because the brutal facts of the present is not what God has for you in the future. Don't set dates. God, you got to have it out. You gotta, we got to be done with this by this time. We got to be done with it by then. We got to be done. No, 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 no. It's Jesus says what? We're going to receive the crown of life. As, as Francis Chan said on the, the video in your small groups, is that, look, God has prepared a place for us where there is no more pain and no more sorrow and no more suffering. We keep that in mind, that this world is temporary. This world is not your permanent home. This world is just simply maturing you and, and developing Christ's likeness before you enter into the realm that God has prepared for you for all of eternity. And so you face the brutal realities of, yes, what I'm going through now, with the backdrop of knowing that this is not the end. It is merely a step in my life that is leading me towards the ultimate hope that I have in Christ. And that's what keeps you going. That's what makes me persevere. So in the meantime, in the meantime, You listen, you listen to God in his word. You write, you write what he's teaching you. You write down what he's showing you. And then you wait with a readiness to obey. And what God will do with every single trial in your life is in some form or fashion, he's going to develop you within you the mind of Christ, the character of Christ, so that you can live the life of Christ every single time if you allow him to do so. Let's bow our heads together. Father, as we, um, as we think about the painful events of our lives, Lord, I know that words, mere words themselves, seem very trite at times and like in a neat package with a bow on top of it, but God, we know that life isn't that way, that life can, can literally crush us on the inside, but we thank you that you give us an equalizer called the Holy Spirit. We no longer have to walk in fear. We no longer have to walk in doubt. We no longer have to work, walk in worry and anxiety, but God, you have, you have equipped us to think differently to walk differently, to believe differently, to have a faith that is uncommon, that enables us to see your hand at work in our lives. And even if we can't understand it all in this lifetime, we're going to continue to trust you and go deeper with you because we know that when we take refuge in you, God, you always bring hope and you always bring healing into the situation. So I thank you because there are many here this morning that bear testimony, Father, have you, how you have walked with them through various uh, trials and deep, deep, dark valleys. And now you're using them in great ways as they shout from the rooftops about your faithfulness and your generosity and your goodness and graciousness in the midst of it all. And there may be some here this morning that are right in the middle of that valley and they're wondering, God, where are you? They can't see you. They can't hear you. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak loud and clear, that they would sense your presence as they're waiting upon you. 
I pray that they will remain under the trial until you have accomplished what it is you need to accomplish, that they will not bail out. They will not run. They don't try to hide. But God, they will allow you to do a work within them. That's going to be a testimony of your goodness and your faithfulness and your graciousness. So, Father, thank you for this time that we've had together around your word with each other this morning in worship of you. And I pray, God, that you will have your will and your way in our lives, that we will lay it all on the line. We will lay it all on the line and allow you to do a work that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we uh, close out. Just a time of uh, opening up. Hey, if you're here this morning and maybe God's just spoken to your heart, you'd like to pray or have somebody pray with you, you come to the front. We have those who would pray with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and your trust in Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, the best thing you have is human willpower. And human willpower does not last very long. Trust me, been there, done that. God wants to give you an equalizer on the inside. He wants to equalize the pressure on the inside that's coming from the outside. And it's called the Holy Spirit. And the way that we receive the Holy Spirit of God is through a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. If you've never opened up your heart and trusted in Him alone to be your Savior and Lord of your life, I encourage you to do that this morning. You can check on your connection card. I'd love to meet with you after the service, pray with you, or uh, just help you answer any questions you may have. So as we, before we leave this morning, before we head our separate ways, um, Let's just lift up to the Father a gift of thankfulness to Him. A gift of thankfulness that He's always faithful and true and good and kind, even in the midst of our most severe trials as He walks with us. Listen, you do not walk alone in the trial. Everywhere you go, the Spirit goes with you. You are never alone. So let's praise Him for that.